is Our American Stories. And did you know that all of China runs on just a single time zone? Well, here in America, we have four. Pacific, Mountain, Central, and Eastern. But we used to have thousands. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of how time zones came to America. What time is it? It's a seemingly easy question. But depending on what time zone you live in, your time will be different. The development and spread of the railroads across the United States in the 1800s brought a wave of changes to American life. The railroad boom created jobs, new towns, faster transportation, increased trade, and transformed the American landscape forever with the first transcontinental railroad completed in 1869. It's a heroic chapter in American history, but the most interesting transformation is least known. The establishment of Standard Time. After all, up until noon on November 18, 1883, timekeeping was medieval. Each town in the United States had its own time depending on when the noonday sun was directly overhead. Here's American popular science author, Stephen Johnson. So you know what it's like taking a train ride today. You can kick back, read a book, listen to some music, but imagine what it would have been like in 1870, trying to take a train. Let's say we're traveling from New Haven to New York. And so I get on the train at, at 12 o'clock New Haven time, and it takes us two hours to get to New York. So we should be arriving in New York at two o'clock. But in fact, in New York time, that's technically 1.55. But the train we're on is actually running on on Boston time. So that means we're actually pulling into the station in New York on Boston time at 2.17. But then we're like making a connection to a train to Baltimore that's running on Baltimore time. So that train is actually leaving the station at 2.07, which seems to be in the past. I mean, you have to be a math major to figure out what time it is. So how did the nation settle on uniform time zones? Some may think that the government brought order out of this chaos, but this was not the case. It was the railroads that spearheaded the move to a time zone system because the varying times in different towns created hazards for traveling trains. A miscalculation of one minute could mean a collision. As the Foundation for Economic Education President Lawrence Reed noted, east-west travel was rough. Predicting the time a train would arrive at any particular stop was no small feat in the days before standard time. Fearing government intervention, railroad managers commissioned transportation publisher William Frederick Allen to devise a simple plan. He proposed four time zones divided vertically, 15 degrees apart by lines called meridians. Those meridians came close to hitting the cities of Philadelphia, Memphis, Denver, and Fresno. In October of 1883, a general time convention held in Chicago, set up by various railroads, approved of noon, November 18, 1883, as the date when railroad time would replace local time. The railroads didn't bother with legislation or with Congress. Here's historian Michael O'Malley, author of Keeping Watch, A History 
of American time. They just say, we're doing it, and you can get on board. They call it the Day of Two Noons. That's the nickname. The railroad announced it's a, it's a Sunday, that at noon on this day, November 18th, they're just going to stop all operations. Wherever the train is, it's just going to stop, and it's going to wait however long it takes to catch up with what the new standard time will be. And in cities, any city that agrees to go along with it, and most of them do, they stop the clocks or they suddenly move them ahead. And in, in major cities in America, people get wind of this and they gather around the clocks wondering sort of anxiously what's going to happen. You know, it's a puzzling thing. Uh, there's, you know, jokes that if you slip on a banana peel at the right moment, you'll take 15 minutes to fall. And then it happens, you know, and the people look at each other and they shrug and nothing much happens. Since these new time zones were a private undertaking, they had no force of law. Only railroad employees had to obey the new times. But in fact, people began to set their watches by a railroad time, and the change was widely accepted. Some government officials were apparently annoyed that such a change could take place without their playing any serious role. According to H. Stuart Holbrook, in the story of American Railroads, the traveling public and shipper too quickly fell in with the new time belt plan and naturally found it good. But Uncle Sam wasn't ready to admit the change was beneficial. A few days before November 18th, the Attorney General of the United States issued an order that no government department had a right to adopt railroad time until authorized by Congress. So when did Congress authorize the change? 35 years later, on March 19, 1918, during World War I. At this point, Congress passed the Standard Time Act and made official what everyone else had put into practice. Time zones were now legally part of American life. Here again is Michael O'Malley. What Standard Time did is it changed the nature of community. Before Standard Time, the time of day was what the local sun was doing, and it was noon in your valley. You know, on the other side of the mountain, it was not quite noon yet. But Standard Time, if everybody adopted it, put people in new forms of relationship to each other. So after 1883, from Portland, Maine to Atlanta, everybody's on Eastern Time. 8 o'clock in the morning means 8 o'clock in the morning, regardless of what the sun is doing. If you think of North-South as being one of the great divides of American life, this obliterates North-South, and it makes North and South the same all along the eastern seaboard, whereas before, North and South were very different. It makes East and West a more meaningful difference, and it unites a whole Western region from Texas up to Minnesota in a single time. So it does rearrange the kind of priorities for community. Today, let's celebrate time zones by remembering the constitutional role of government to enforce laws and provide national defense. Beyond that, a free people can create solutions to a multitude of problems. They did so in 1883 when they created time zones. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. It's time to move on. It's time to get going. What lies ahead, I have no way This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
And now it's time for our Marriage on the Mind series with our marriage coach, Deb Olniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and also serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, you can write to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and she'll make sure to get back to you within 24 hours. And today's Marriage on the Mind story is from Emily Harden, who shared her marriage story in the New York Times recently. Her piece was titled, I Planned My Wedding in Five Days, You Could Too. And Emily graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. It was the day before my wedding, and I literally did not have a dress. In 24 hours, all my friends and family would be gathering in the Empire Ballroom. And at this point, my something borrowed was an entire church outfit from my best friend's closet. Was I concerned? Not really, actually. I decided to throw a Hail Mary at my mom and asked if she would make a skirt to match a $10 top I had found at the mall. She did, and it was lovely. Absolutely lovely. But my wedding dress was just one of many things I was not concerned about. For example, five days earlier, which was a Thursday, which also happened to be New Year's Eve, I was on the phone with the woman who had become my banquet coordinator. Uh, The conversation took place about an hour after I got officially engaged as Rob and I were hiking in the hills of Sedona in Arizona. The conversation went like this. Her. (coughs) Excuse me, you are getting married in five days and you are just calling me now? Me. Well, I actually think I'm being quite generous. I just got engaged an hour ago and you are my very first call. I figured I should work out some logistics before texting everyone. And no, I am not pregnant just to make that clear. Her. Well, that is unusual. How many people are you expecting? Me. Um, probably a hundred. Her. (laughs) One hundred people with five days notice? Me. People do it for funerals all the time. If I underestimate, we will have leftovers. If I overestimate, I'll just make my family eat last. Her. I'm not sure how to process this. Okay, let's talk about flowers. Me. (laughs) No, thank you. Her. No flowers? Me. The room is beautiful enough. I don't think anyone will notice. It seems really wasteful. Her. Uh, how about tablecloths and napkin colors? Me. Just whatever is cheapest and most convenient. I don't really care. Her. You don't have colors? Me. Well, um, I guess the only suit my fiance has right now is navy. And he has a pink tie. Everything else is in storage, so I guess we'll go with that for my wedding colors. Navy and pink. Her. Is this a joke? 
My entire luncheon was planned in an hour because Rob Reading, my now husband, and I knew each other for four years and had been dating over the past year, we knew we wanted to spend eternity together. In fact, as a side note, we already had met with our bishops for pre-marriage approval, but had not become officially engaged. And because my husband's maritime work and a transfer from London to the Bay Area, along with me working on the Little Sisters of the Poor Supreme Court case, we figured we had two options in the moment after his proposal. We could get married in a week or get married in a year. We eagerly decided it was T minus five days to put my theory to the test. So let's people ask, why, why five days? Well, long ago, I became convinced that modern weddings were unnecessarily burdensome. My theory was you could plan a beautiful wedding in a week. The second call I made that day in the desert was to my parents, who told me their prayers were answered. And the third call I made that afternoon was to the Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wasn't exactly concerned about getting a slot at the temple because Tuesday mornings isn't exactly prime time for weddings. So at this point, it was still day one of planning, and I already had my ceremony and my reception site secured. Wedding invitations were sent out a few hours later via text message with a collage of selfies saying, would love to have you come if you can make it. No gifts, just love. I then called in favors from best friends to do photos and hair and makeup, and I pulled strings to get performers and an MC for the event. So as the last of six children to get married, not to mention the fact that I've had 13 foster siblings, my parents were not complaining. In addition, the small farm town that I grew up in, literally there were more cows than humans, um, the town was rejoicing that the two of us in our 30s and 40s that we were getting married at all. Okay, to be sure, I acknowledge that five days notice was inconvenient and there were a few people who couldn't make it. But whether it is five days or five years, it would have been inconvenient and there would have been those who would have missed it. And surprisingly, there were only a handful of close friends who couldn't make it, which is the same rate as any wedding. And some of the best parts, the total planning time, 26 hours, and that includes me shopping for my dress, and the total cost, $4,500. The result on January 5th, 2016 was the perfect wedding day. People commented that it couldn't have been more lovely if I had an entire year to plan it. And guess what? Not a single person noticed that we didn't have flowers. In fact, I've even polled a lot of the people at my wedding to ask, hey, did you notice? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't notice you didn't have flowers. Side note. So as my mother Marilyn said, hallelujah. Hallelujah for putting the relationship above the wedding. Hallelujah for not worrying about complicated logistics. And hallelujah for not having enough time to change your mind. Thank you, Mother. Well, Rob kept saying to me throughout the five-day process, what do you want me to do? 
And I kept telling him there wasn't anything for him to do. And here's why. With each social expectation for weddings, I asked myself two questions. One, does this achieve the goal of making people at my wedding feel loved and appreciated for the role they played in my life? Or two, will it help strengthen my marriage and the promises that we made to each other? If the answer was no, I didn't waste any more time. I now appreciate applying this to other areas of my life. Now that we're married, I ask myself, is where we go to dinner eternally significant? If not, why argue over it? Or do party favors for the barbecue you're giving matter? Probably not. I say, enjoy the path of least resistance. If it truly represents the most important elements of your life and your relationship, then put time and put energy and put creativity into it. But if not, do yourself a favor and skip the stress. You know, and in all this, Rob also saw the beauty in our very short engagement and the microburst planning period. He said, the longer it plays out, the longer the nuisance. It would have just been an obstacle to starting our life, so why wait? So, you know what? I may not have a $200 gravy boat, and I may have worn an 888 Walmart wedding ring that eventually turned my finger green, but our flowerless navy and pink wedding set the perfect precedent for married life. Elegantly simple. And thank you, Emily, for that. And when we come back, we will be joined by Deb Wolniak to talk about weddings, stress, and so much more. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Emily Hardman's story from the New York Times. I plan my wedding in five days. You could, too. our American stories and we return to our marriage on the mind segment and joining us as always is Deb Wolniak our marriage coach and Deb what a great story to hear and what a what a fresh and wonderful voice I almost want to have Emily on a couple of times a year and just play this so anyone going through the tumult of a wedding plan uh, can just maybe just ditch it Uh, talk about uh, your first impressions when you heard this Well, it is refreshing. That's the key word there because so many couples get tied up in knots, literally, (laughs) about planning a wedding that is there to, you know, maybe it's been a dream of somebody for a long time, but ultimately when that wedding is done and they're spending an average of 35000 on a wedding now in America. um, Deb, hold on a second, Deb. You said 35000 is the average? Yes, that's the average. It does include our big cities like New York at 78, Chicago at 60, and L.A. at 44. 
But, you know, the reality is most couples are spending around ten grand. That is the goal. But even then, for some folks, that is a huge stretch. And to have couples that are having 200 guests or so, that is a big responsibility. And let me tell you, when that's done and the honeymoon's over, your reality is going to set in. Um, this is a commitment I made for the rest of my life. And what do I have to show up in weddings? Some awesome pictures, some great memories. Absolutely. Those are all things that are important. But what did you do financially that's going to set you ahead or back at the starting line of your marriage? And, and Deb, you know, coming into the marriage, this first crisis point, I actually think the wedding is the first crisis point. And so if you two learn how to negotiate through that crisis point, my wife and I did it fast like this. We did it cheap because we just said we are not incurring debt to go yes. into the future of our life. And as, you, as we've talked about, Deb, finances is one of the key strains on a marriage. What oh. a crazy way and what a crazy precedent to set for your marriage. How are you going to handle other crisis points? The first house comes up. You want to keep up with the Joneses. So you get a house you can't afford, so on right. and so forth. So right. talk about, as a marriage coach, how this is an opportunity for a good coach uh, to come between a couple and have them think about the long view of marriage and these other crisis financial points that come. Because from a car to a house and to vacations, where right. and how we spend our money on those three things can right. either lead to financial ruin or to financial health. And we know what happens to marriages that are financially healthy. They have a right. better shot. Yes, they do. And that you're on the same page for those things. So I'm going to challenge folks that are listening to, hey, yes, have a designer wedding, one that fits your pocketbook, your lifestyle, and your goals. That's an important lesson. But also have a designer marriage. So many people go into the act of getting married that they don't consider how their relationship stage is at and really knowing where the other person is at when you make that, let's face it, business decision for life. You would not go into a partnership with a business without checking out the other person's motives and goals first. And to know where that other per person is at and that you're on the same page. Why would you go into a lifelong commitment for marriage and not check those things out? I believe there's a lot of people that have a great, great love for each other that don't take the time to do the double checks before they walk down the aisle. And don't you want to know that you know that you know why you're marrying that person? The good, the bad, and the ugly. The things that really help us identify, none of us are perfect. But I am willing and ready to make that commitment to that individual come hell or high water because this is my person that I'm going to team with for the rest of my life. And I love this person. Let's not forget about that. The second you throw the wedding ring, engagement ring, I'm sorry, on your finger is the second that most couples turn off the relationship building power and go into action mode. I got to get this thing and this and this. And you'll see it with a lot of brides. They just go into the zone sometimes with their, their mothers that they just get so involved in the wedding. They forget about the relationship. They come to the day and that bride is on one end of the aisle or the, you know, wherever you're getting married at and the groom's at the other and she's going or he's going, oh my gosh, I hope this works. And if you think you're thinking that right now and you're planning your wedding, you need to stop and make sure you have a coach that can come alongside you and do some of that premarital coaching that is so, so important. I will always say prepare and enrich is one of the number one ways 
in 30 minutes that you can find out where your strength areas are and where your challenge areas are so you as a couple can go through this lesson plan of six weeks and know where you're at. Know exactly how you're going to use the tools on relationship wellness to build your relationship so you can have the relationship everybody else envies because they want the same thing too, whether they tell you or not. It's not about the car you drive or the house that you have or 2.5 kids. It is about a solid relationship that you can come home to and feel that safety and warmth and love. And that is something we all crave. And no dollar is going to get you there. You have to work on it yourself. And Deb, you talk a little bit about, in our notes, about the social media aspect of this and how appearances versus reality is intruding into all of our lives. And let's face it, nobody puts a, a bad experience on Facebook. And everybody's right. looking to see if they can outdo or outgame the next person on social media. And so in some respects, costs have probably amped up because people are competing against one another for the superior uh-huh. wedding, the better photo, the better picture. This actually harms relationships. I, I can't wait to see the 10-year and 20-year studies of Facebook on human psychology. But talk about how it might affect and disrupt a marriage. I'll give you one very good example why this came up. I was told the other, I have not seen this footage, but there was a couple that was getting engaged, and the gentleman was so nice to be able to maybe have his friend from the bushes take and take pictures and make sure the video was ready so they could put that up on Facebook afterward. And as he got down on one knee and asked this girl to marry him, the first thing she said, is there a camera? Is there a video? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there is. Oh, that's great. Um, Can we redo this? I mean, she took the moment away from him, and he was so patient with her. They did it 30 times. 30. Why? Because they wanted that perfect moment. But the crazy thing is they'll never get it because that moment was taken away by image. And I'm going to tell you what. I know a lot of people are going with that right now because they want to outdo their friends. You have nothing when you do that. Nothing. People do not understand what love is anymore. They don't understand relationship. They're getting into that social media and the front, what you're wearing, what you're doing, where you're going, takes takes precedence over true relationship. And part of that is intimacy and vulnerability. If you cannot be truly honest with your future spouse or your spouse, you need to get help to run the marathon that marriage is. It's not a sprint. It's not a photo. It's not a video. It is about you and your partner with the raw naked truth on the fact that you have to grow your relationship and you are the only two that can do it. That's it. It's if a, you don't know what that means, you have a problem. You need to get some help. It's so true, Deb. And by the way, I was at a, a Tom Petty concert about a month ago and, and Jesse was at the same show. And it was so irritating. My wife and I are finally like, there's couples all around us and they're holding, the th- they're holding up their camera. And I'm going, can you just watch a concert? Can you just experience something together? Do you have to be in it? And post it to your friends how lucky you are and how unlucky they are. It's real. It's it's crazy, Deb, that the, what people are doing with their own lives. They're turning their own lives into movies. And look right. at movie stars' lives. It doesn't end well. So why do you want this kind of fame, Deb? We love the we love the coaching. Thanks for that note. And as always, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to what you have next week for us. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. Our marriage coach. 
and she also happens to serve on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. This has been her life's work, and she's our marriage coach here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time now for our This Day in History, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College who teach all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't go to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you, to your family, with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And today on This Day in History, the great American poet, Robert Frost was born in 1874. He was a college dropout, twice, that is. He first attended Dartmouth but quit after two months. He got his second chance in 1897 at Harvard, but only made it two years before dropping out to support his wife and his child. Still, he managed to get a degree anyway. Harvard bestowed honorary honors upon him in 1937 and we thought the best way to celebrate his poetry was to hear him read some of it and by the way a lot of critics called his poem simple but the collision between light and dark is there and it is beautiful and it reminds us of the landscapes of the great andrew wyeth here's frost with the poem mending wall something there is that doesn't love a wall that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made. But at spring mending time we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go. To each the boulders that have fallen, to each. And some are loaves, and some so nearly balls we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side, it comes to little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. 
Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. And here's another frost gem, The Runaway. Once when the snow of the year was beginning to fall, we stopped by a mountain pasture to say whose colt, A little Morgan had one forefoot on the wall, the other curled at his breast. He dipped his head and snorted to us, and then he had to bolt. We heard the miniature thunder where he fled, and we saw him, or thought we saw him, dim and gray, like a shadow against the curtain of falling flakes. I think the little fellow's afraid of the snow. He isn't winter broken. It doesn't play with the little fellow at all. He's running away. I doubt if even his mother could tell him, sakes, it's only weather. He'd think she didn't know. Where is his mother? He can't be out alone. And now he comes again with a clatter of stone and mounts the wall again with whited eyes and all his tail that isn't hair up straight. He shudders his coat as if to throw off flies. Whoever it is that leaves him out so late when everything else has gone to stall and bin ought to be told to come bring him in. And next up, the woodchuck. The woodchuck. My own strategic retreat is where two rocks almost meet and still more secure and snug, a two-door burrow I dug. With those in mind at my back, I can sit forth exposed to attack as one who shrewdly pretends that he and the world are friends. All we who prefer to live have a little whistle we give and flash at the least alarm we dive down under the farm. We allow some time for guile and don't come out for a while either to eat or drink. We take occasion to think. But if after the hunt goes past and the double-barreled blast like war and pestilence and the loss of common sense, if I can with confidence say that still for another day and even another year, I will be there for you, my dear, it will be because though small as measured against the all, I have been so instinctively thorough about my crevice and burrow. And now the classic stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness belts a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep 
and miles to go before I sleep. And last but not least, Robert Frost's reading of Birches. When I see Birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. But swinging doesn't bend them down to stay as ice storms do. Often you must have seen them loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avalanching on the snow crust, such heaps of broken glass to sweep away you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They are dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break. Though once they're bowed so low for long, they never right themselves. You may see their trunks arching in the woods years afterward, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their heads to dry in the sun. But I was going to say when Truth broke in with all her matter-of-fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have had some boy bend them as he went out or in to fetch the cows, some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them and not one but hung limp. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you used to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So as I once myself a swinger of birches, and so I dream of going back to be. It's when I'm weary of considerations and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. And one could do worse than to listen and read Robert Frost's poetry. He was the first poet to read at a presidential inauguration. John F. Kennedy invited Frost to do a reading at his 1961 ceremony. And Frost was born in San Francisco on this day in history in 1874. He received four Pulitzer Prizes over his lifetime for poetry before he passed in 1963 at the age of 88. He outlived four of his six children. And by the way, Frost knew tragedy. Of his six kids, only two outlasted him. One of his daughters died shortly after birth. Another died giving birth. His son, Elliot, succumbed to cholera. And another daughter, Carol, committed suicide. The great poet, and we miss poetry here in America. It would be good to say we have great living poets that everyone knows. But my goodness... 
Take a listen, take a read to Robert Frost, born on this day in history in 1874. is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people, but every once in a while it's about a musician. And by the way, our music hours have included everything from Frank Sinatra to Tom Petty to Kirk Cobain, Miles Davis, John Denver, Greg Allman, Vladimir Horowitz, John Paul White, Merle Haggard, Chris Stapleton, my favorite Aretha Franklin and Carol King, Chuck Berry, and of course Johnny Cash. And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list, because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history, with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex. Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one. Sorry now. I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Bandstand will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstand is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other song so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn song. So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own style. And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Miss Connie Francis, who's calling on? It would sell over one million copies going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. Not that her parents would treat her that way. I remember after Who's Sorry Now, it was a big hit. My mother one night said, take out the garbage. And I said, 
I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore. I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. <laughs> so I would never get a big head. She would see me writing in my diary, and she said, you're writing your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important. She said that to you? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good humbling thing. <laughs> do, you, do you thank her for, for uh, doing yes. that? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> Her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was. Italian home in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old broken-down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said accordion, like a dope. Who could afford a piano anyway? And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first concert. And I sang Anchors Away and O Sole Mio. You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting yes. to learn the accordion <laughs> at that age. The accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since. Can you really remember that age? I'm, I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three, you know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, so I'm just curious how vivid your memories are. I were yesterday. Do you remember being ner nervous before? No, this? I wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage. <laughs> Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood that's called the Italian Down Neck in Newark, New Jersey. And what was also ever-present was food. Well, food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich. Oh, done. Where do you taste this cocoa? Man? Your mouth and your mouth. I call it communion. <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franconero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change. He was having a hard time pronouncing Franconero. So he said, come over here, little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old, easy to pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see. Like, what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Franconero tonight? And tomorrow I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? <laughs> Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records, and what hooked them was her demo song, Freddy. It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddy, I know that you've been seeing Daisy. Freddy, like that. You have a standing invitation. MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song, 
largely because it was the name of his son whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now? And then the scary realization, where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon? And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on Our American Dreamers Stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's feature with Connie Francis. And when they left off, she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with Who's Sorry Now? But would she have another one? Donny Kirshner, and he was a publisher, with a broken-down office and a broken desk and a broken chair. And he called me and he said, I have two kids, they're phenomenal, uh, they're great songwriters. I said, everybody has great songwriters. So... He said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil. Neil Sadaka. And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was when Who's Sorry Now hit. We had lost our middle-class home. We were living in a rented apartment in Newark. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors and... I'd get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie in the, in, with his elbow, like, look at this place. So they played me song after song after song, and it was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play this song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I got to write my diary yet. So I was on my belly, writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next record, Stupid Cupid, hit title. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year. For Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of, of what was going on with your family? Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sold only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. My father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57... I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. The end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female vocalist. 
Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career, but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship. Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing a solo in Neo in Italian and English. So, um, and then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every, every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he'd get his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me, it's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered. When I did make it on records, I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages. And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian and of the favorite songs of that language. Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London, the Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded, and came out with the album... Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four. And to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single, Mama, would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish, a language that she actually learned as a young kid. Three years ago, we moved in with my grandma. We lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in, in their colloquial language. How, how did you learn it? I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood. And how old were you when, when you learned it as well? Five years old. Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in. You mean that? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my neighborhood. I mean, do you remember any kind of conflicts of your, your first experiences? Um, you know, any, any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you? Oh, they accepted me all right. The, the Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even until today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made. And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's. Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all. 
because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's, there's no a guttural sound like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese. I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before. <laughs> You're right, Connie. And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union, did. If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or, or death. Um, I did a radio show on Radio Luxembourg, which was a clear channel, 50,000-watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, there were 15 million listeners a day. And it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain and even into Tunisia and Morocco. And I did the, that show, 15-minute show, every week from New York and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store and they sold only classical music. Uh, pop music was, not, was banned. And I heard uh, the song, O Calcutta. Coming, and there were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, uh, do you like American music? And they said, nein, nein. No, no. I said to them in German. And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they, they had heard my, my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German. And they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know. It was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, wow. which was a horrible thing. And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary-breaking. Her title track for the movie Where the Boys Are would reach number four on the charts and the Fort Lauderdale Florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break. And it caught on a little too immediately. When I went to do the movies, well, Fort Lauderdale was a prairie. It was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city. That was the police force. When where the Boys Are was released in December and January of Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall and at the Gateway Theater down here in Fort Lauderdale. 50,000 kids inundated Fort Lauderdale, and they had to call in the National Guard. They had to call in the Coast Guard. I-95 was a parking lot, and, and kids were sleeping on the beach, and, and uh, lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star Spangled Banner in the nude on top of a flagpole. Newsweek covered the story, and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County. My goodness, what storytelling. And when we come back, more of this amazing life, this remarkable singer, our American Dreamers series, Connie Francis's life, her story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this great American Dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis. Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream, but not every chapter of her story has been bright. In 1974, while appearing at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience and make something positive out of it. But not immediately. It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview, and I, and I didn't... Uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered, and then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I, I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crime. And I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the Earnest Resistance Law in New York, where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California. Not the one to repeal gay marriage, but a Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California. And within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%. What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder in bringing her back out into the public. What happened? My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that. How close were you guys in age? Two and a half years. He was younger than I was. I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to... How to cope with it. I'm yeah. a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, but I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have a, had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends. And also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals. Huh. What kind of humor have you found there? Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. 
<laughs> it was one thing. Then they said to me, "We, uh, you have." I said, "Wait a minute." They they wrote down Peggy Smith on my admittance, and I said, "Wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith. I'm Connie Francis." And they said, "No, we do that to protect your identity." I said, "I want people to know where I am. I want my name." No, it's hospital procedure. You have to be Peggy Smith. I said, "Look, I've been in show business all my life, and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star." So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay. <laughs> to close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren, who started out his career as a songwriter for her. And when Connie's father learned that Darren Wanted to elope after one of her shows. He ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint, telling him to never see his daughter again. He would have, my father would have killed us. Well, he would have killed Bobby. And people say throughout the years, why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful? Because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died. Was there anything against him personally that he had? Well, he was male to begin with. So just the fact of another man taking taking his right. daughter? <laughs> yeah. So it could have been any male. <laughs> but especially Bobby. What I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write... Although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain. A career where she also found deep meaning. What's, Connie, what's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you? I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person. And I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero. What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you? Horrible. The MACV hospitals where they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, save for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys. And 18-year-old kids, the average age of a Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers. Um, was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go. I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, you know, like Bob Hope, would, they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, what was, what was, what the war was really all about. Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims... An American Dreamer.
And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. I don't think it gets better than that. I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said about entertaining the troops in Vietnam. And it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad. My father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain. And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. And I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, on Merle Haggard, the Aretha Franklin Carol King story, remarkable, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you, Miles Davis too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love to talk about movies on this show and in this next story you're about to hear from two guys who loved a movie so much when they were kids that they recreated the movie in their own backyard and on an epic level. Here's Jesse with a story. It all started in 1981 with Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford. It was that year's top-grossing film and one of the biggest box office earners of all time with upwards of $390 million in sales. But for whatever reason, the very following year, small town of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, 11-year-old Chris Stramopoulos and 12-year-old Eric Zala set out to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark on video, scene for scene, every shot, every line of dialogue, the entire film, using the original screenplay and score by John Williams. These kids are nuts. Not only did they pull it off, they pretty much nailed it. Shooting for this epic fan film began in 1982 and continued over the next seven summers on a shoestring budget of $5,000. It's quite possibly one of the best fan films ever made. They have screenings for this thing all over the world, and everybody in Hollywood knows about it. Now, the idea to remake the film scene by scene was hatched by then 11-year-old Chris Dramopoulos, but it was 12-year-old Eric Zala who had all of the experience. Yeah, I did a class film in sixth grade, which Chris saw. We rode on the bus to elementary school together, and he, as a result, mistakenly thought I knew something about film. So when he got this wacky idea to remake Raiders Lost Ark shot for shot, um, that and the fact that I borrowed his Raiders Lost Ark comic book on the bus is what led him to give me a call and say, hey, 
I'm remaking Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you want to help? And I thought all the sets were built. Everyone was cast. I'd just sort of walk on and help. Little did I know, the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the published screenplay and, as any good producer will do, cast himself as Indiana Jones. So where did Chris get the idea to remake what was then a major blockbuster release in the early 80s? He says it was all just about kids having fun. The whole sort of originating idea was really born out of more of a role-playing thing. It was a, it was a fantasy. It was, yeah, a creative project ensued and, and, a, and a lifelong collaboration ensued. But I don't think it was ever like... I don't ever think it entered our minds, you know, uh, like we sat down and, and thought, okay, well, we're about to put a, a whole, you know, the next seven years of our lives into a creative project. What else do you want to work on? You know, what other, what other things that, it's like, this is what we're doing, and we're kind of going for it, and, and we had no, long, uh, no idea how long it was going to take us. Mm-hmm. So we sort of dove in and did it. So I don't, I don't know if we had that spectrum of creative thinking yet. I think it was just like, hey, this is it. This is what we're doing. Mm. Wouldn't it be exciting if? And we just sort of went after it with that childlike energy. How did these kids in southern Mississippi back in the early 80s pull it off? Eric explains that it wasn't really easy. As a uh, 11 and 12-year-old, respectively, growing up in Mississippi in the uh, 80s, pre-internet, you know, how do you remake a $26 million movie on your allowance? You know, we knew nothing about it. And, and for the first year, so we kind of, figuratively speaking, groped around in the darkness as far as figuring out how you do that. You know, I wrote a 600-page shot list, and then it got to the end and realized it was utterly worthless. You know, close up, and he walks into room. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And, and then figured out, okay, no, storyboards. That's how the professionals do it. Yeah, yeah, and it was sort of by osmosis, uh, filmmaking on the fly. Now, filmmaking on the fly can sometimes get a little dangerous, especially when kids are in charge. One day, there was a fire on the set. Most of the interiors we shot in my mom's basement, which had this big rambling basement, multiple rooms. So uh, we would, we'd only shoot in the summertime. Um, you know, it was like summer camp. You know, we'd, we'd do production, pre-production during the school year, but during the summer that was our time. So, uh, think 120% humidity, typical Mississippi summer day, um, start early and, um, and uh, saunter down to the basement where you know, it's made up like a Nepalese saloon with my dad's old wine bottles lining the, uh, lining the, uh, the shelves and, and Jason, our cameraman, is wiring up squibs to go off in the wall. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, the, the Nepalese saloon nearly burns down. And um, our moms had shut us down the previous summer because, well, they spotted a shot with me with my back on fire and for some reason I had a problem with this. Um, so, but they allowed us to continue with uh, two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. And so um, he helped us uh, guide us to when, you know, there wasn't enough fire in certain edges of the frame, you know, more, more gasoline over there. It's a wonder we didn't burn the house down. Don't try this at home, kids. When making a film, be it in Hollywood or Mississippi, there are several stages of production. There's pre-production, shooting, and post-production. Here again is Eric on the pre-production efforts to build this monumental tribute film. First summer was entirely nothing but pre-production, drawing storyboards, scouting locations, casting, costumes, props. Year two, we finally shot, kept none of it because, again, we didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, so there's very few shots that, that we actually kept from that first year, but there are certain scenes that we just would shoot over and over and over again to, 
through uh, trial and error, we slowly picked up things about uh, learning about composition, lighting, blocking, acting, and bit by bit we got better. And only when we were satisfied with uh, the quality of a shot and of a scene would we move on to the next. Now these kids are obviously determined to get the film made, but there was another major hurdle that they would have to overcome back in the early 80s. And that was just simply having access to the film that they were trying to recreate. We only actually saw the movie a few times, you know, uh, uh, and worked pretty much from memory for the first handful of years until the film actually came out on Laserdisc in 84. And so we cobbled together absolutely everything that we could in terms of, you know, Raider's paraphernalia, you know, um, storybooks and magazines and, and bubblegum cards and, and all that stuff, the comic book and the screenplay, and, and to the best of our memory sat down and, and Eric you know, chiseled out well over 600 individual storyboards that we then used as a blueprint. But we, you know, we went back to the theater as much as we could. But, um, you know, for those of us who kind of remember the 80s, there were, there, video stores were really in their infancy, that you couldn't really go down and rent whatever you wanted, you know. Um, there was an availability issue, you know, and and it was in a movie when they kind of re-released things. So when the movie was re-released in the theater, we went back and watched it, you know, again as much as our, you know, allowance would allow. So the boys ended up finishing their scene-by-scene remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark with their big premiere at an auditorium of the local Coca-Cola bottling plant in Gulfport, Mississippi on August 12th, 1989. Chris Strompolis, Eric Zala, and Jason Lamb have just finished an eight-year recreation. The trio premiered their version of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hope to major in film and television. It's the hardest thing I've ever done so far. We've been following this story off and on for the past three years. Let's get you up to speed by turning back the hands of time. Action sequence, take one. It was shot out of sequence, so due to its long filming period, many actors randomly appear at different ages throughout the course of the film. They completed every scene in the film except for one that was too complicated and expensive for the kids to convincingly pull off. It's the scene from Raiders where Indiana Jones is in a fistfight with a big bald Nazi next to an airplane with rotating propellers. At the last moment when Indy is getting his ass kicked, the Nazi gets hit by the plane's propeller and is shredded into a million bloody pieces that splatter all over the side of the airplane. But it's a pretty good effort considering it's the only scene the kids couldn't match. After setting Mom's basement on fire, it was probably a good idea to nix the death by propeller scene. The boys went their separate ways going off to college and the film was largely forgotten until 2003 when a film producer got his hands on the copy of the remake. Here's Chris on the film getting discovered all those years later. I didn't even tell my wife I was an Indiana Jones fan. So she had no idea that I had even done this Raiders thing. And so when it got discovered in 2003 and like exploded, you know, and got us into Vanity Fair and we were all of a sudden touring around the United States and going to Germany and Australia and, you know, my wife was like, um, so what's this Raiders thing, you know? I mean, can you like let me see it? You know, I'm like, eh, it's like this thing that I did. And, you know, I still had that like that reaction, you know? And she's like, this is cool, this is great. So this little remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, born out of the sweltering summer heat of the Mississippi swamp country by a couple of kids with nothing better to do, suddenly had the attention of Hollywood. Each of us um, received a very kind letter from Mr. Spielberg thanking us for our very loving and detailed tribute. And uh, my wife actually 
you know, photographed me at various stages of opening the letter and just sort of like gazing down on, you know, stationary Steven Spielberg and, you know, his signature and, you know, this, my boyhood hero who I spent my entire childhood emulating his, his work. Um, uh, wow, I can't get any better than this, but I was wrong. Um, you know, jump forward a year and we've been screening and written up in Vanity Fair and uh, we're in Los Angeles doing the Today Show and uh, the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn and we get a call from our agent. We have an agent now. Um, Spielberg wants to meet you in his office tomorrow at noon. God, <laughs> I was doing okay handling all this up to this point, but now I feel kind of sick. In the year 2014, Chris and Eric raised enough money to go back and film that scene that they couldn't quite pull off as 12-year-olds thus completing the childhood project that started back in 1982. Be sure to check out the documentary about this charming little story online. Show it to your kids. It's called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. <laughs>